There we go. The book of Romans is a fascinating study. And chapter 12 has been, certainly for me, and I hope so for you as we've gone through the book of Romans, chapter 12, it's been a rewarding study. Uh, exploring in, in perhaps greater depth the themes that Paul pursues in this particular chapter, this um, bringing together of what Christianity is for the people of Rome and, and therefore for us as well. And when you get down to verse 15, we have this passage of rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If you were to go and study that, there's not an awful lot to study in the sense that rejoice simply means rejoice. It means to be glad. It means a degree of happiness that is more than circumstantial. It's because of a relationship that you have with God. And weep means what it means. But it's not weeping in the sense of, of um, sadness or sorrow. It's, it's weeping. It's literally crying. It's, it's feeling such a degree of sorrow that you cannot hold back the tears that the sorrow comes forth. Well, that's all we need to know as far as the language is concerned. But I think if you look a little bit closer, you begin to realize that it's part of a greater theme. If you go back to verses 4 and 5, he mentions in there about us uh, being in one body in both of those verses. And when you go into verse 16, it talks about being of the same mind one toward another. And as I looked at this and sort of got the context of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, of rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those that weep, well, it's about one. It's not just about one in the sense of it's one God or one Jesus or one church. It's that we are one. It's not that there's one building that we meet in on the first day of the week. Or that there's one church of Christ in Cumbernauld. It's that we who make up the members of the body are one. It's about a sense of unity, a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose that says who and what we are in more terms than just simply a number does. It is something that relates to our own harmony with one another that anticipates the needs that we each have and are able to anticipate it in such a way that we can meet those needs perhaps even before the other person realizes what they are themselves. <coughs> it's about being one. When we go in and we look at this, when we consider what Paul is trying to tell us, we need to remember that we have to ask a question. What do you think of when you hear one? Well, let me suggest to you that um, when we talk about this idea of what one is, and maybe for a mathematician, Adam, we think of one as being mathematics for yes. Uh, in binary language, there are two numbers, one and zero. One means yes, and zero means no. And that's how computers work. Computers work in binary language. It basically asks a series of yes, no, it's looking for yes and no's. And eventually it's able, because of the string of yes and no's that it gets, is able to tell you what a word is if you're typing it on a computer screen, or what an equation is, or the, the solution of it if you're working in Excel, or an email that you've gotten from someone, or, or perhaps even something on Facebook. It's all about binary, it's about ones and zeros. And when you put them in a particular sequence, then you end up with the message that you read off, ones and zeros. Well, that may be what it is to a mathematician. Uh, perhaps, if you're, uh, um, uh, perhaps if you're in the catering business, there's only one company you need to come to for all your catering needs. Uh, well, it might not be, but you know, if you were out there, you might think in those terms. Uh, for Charlie, there's only one mother. And that's true of all of us who are children. We've only got one mother. Um, maybe we've been blessed by knowing her. I'm talking about in the biological sense. 
we may have other mothers in terms of uh, people we've cared for, as we Timothy had Lois and Eunice, and one was a mother and one was a grandmother, but it presented as both being mothers in his faith. You know, I'll maybe tease Ronnie and Mary, but being my mum and dad. And I, for those of you who are confused, biologically they are not my mother and father. And it's, uh, it's a long story as to why I call them that. Certainly when we go into scriptures, we begin to realize that the Bible talks about one church. And I just happened to be the one I found in Google Images, Adam. But I know Adam knows the Hendersonville Church of Christ. So we might say, there is only one church. And, and that's right. The Bible talks about that when Jesus is in Matthew 16 talking to his disciples. Hope you've all been reading this week. That's one of the questions. So pay attention. Jesus says, I will build my church. Singular. Perhaps when we talk, talk, excuse me, when we talk about one, perhaps we're maybe referring to the idea that there is just one body. And that this one body is uh, part of what Paul says in Ephesians. He describes them in chapter 1 verse 22 as being the head of the church, one head. And he is, the head is the head of the body. And the body is the church, verse 23. So maybe when we talk about one, we maybe think of one body. Maybe when we talk about one, maybe what we talk about is one another. And our care for each other, and this is certainly emphasized in Romans chapter 12. It's mentioned in uh, coming together as one. In 1 Corinthians 11, Ron took us around the, the Lord's table this morning. And when we talk about one, we maybe think about it in many different terms. But I'll tell you, the Bible frequently likes to use the term one. There's a lot of oneness that goes on in the Bible. For example, there's one God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And there's God. One God, though, singular. When God made man in his image, in Genesis 1, verse 26... Um, it's mentioned as a oneness. There's, there's a singular God there. It's a plural word in the Hebrew. Elohim is plural. But it's God, not gods, that's given to us in verse 26. It's translated that way. It's understood that way. There is only one God. And God only made one creation. There are not parallel universes that you can shift through or slide through if you watch the sci-fi channel and see those programs or listen to... Um, is it Stephen Hawking who's in that wheelchair and talks about parallel universes and other physicists talks in those terms there is only one creation there is only one planet earth there is only one moon that circles around it although some think there's a few others because you've got those little asteroids that are kicking around but there's a sense of oneness I mean, even in the creation we talk about it when God married Adam and Eve he said that the two would become one flesh and those of us who are married understand that it's more than just the physical union of a husband and wife. It's two people becoming a one. They have the same name, I suppose, in many instances. They have, eventually, the wife gets away, they have the same mind. They're on the same wavelength. We maybe talk about it in those terms. But the Bible speaks about it's one, um, talks about one flesh. We maybe talk about that one garden of Eden. He made the earth perfect. But he only planted one garden and placed that one couple in that one garden. And when man pursued his wickedness, Noah was told to build only one boat. And when it came time to use that boat, God sent one flood. And at the end of that flood, he put a rainbow in the cloud and he said, I will never again destroy man from the face of the earth with water. So there's only been one flood. There was a thing in the news recently, we're familiar with what's been going on in uh, Queensland, Australia with all the floods there and somebody used the headline it's a flood on biblical proportions and I said I hope not because when that happened everybody drowned unless they were on that one boat 
And there was only one family that was allowed in that boat. And we who are here today, whether we're from Asia, or whether we're from, I hate that, doesn't it? Whether we're from Asia, whether we're from Scotland, whether we're from North America, South America, Africa, are descended from one family. Noah and his wife and their three children. One is a big thing in the Bible. We may be talking about one nation. Of all the nations of the earth, God chose one nation to be his very special people. Descended biologically from Abraham, brought together as a people through Jacob's descendants by Noah to the promised land that Joshua led them into. There was one nation through whom would come the one Messiah. And indeed that term Messiah simply means chosen one. And we use the, the Latin word Christ to help us understand that. So we start getting the picture that when the Bible talks about one, it's a big thing for God. God is very single-minded on these issues. And of course there is but one church. Christ had one body, Ephesians 1, and all that goes with it, therefore there's one church. So one is therefore more than a number. It's not just the first digit we come to, the prime of primes, if you will. The first of the prime numbers. It's much more than that. Listen to what um, John says, John 17, 21 through 23, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, that the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Consider this. I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect and one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Derek, you're right, we need a bigger monitor. I have to turn around and look at that one. But we've only got the one monitor. Oh, that sounds biblical, actually. Like, think about what he says later on in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And earlier in verse 2, what does he say? Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Having the same love being of one accord, being of one mind. That's the quality of who the body of Christ is. We'll get to why that means rejoicing and weeping a little bit. But God's plan for his church isn't just that there be one church, but that it have one purpose, one accord, one mind, one love that it shares amongst itself. In Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6, as the presence of the Lord, Paul beseeches us as well as the Ephesians to walk worthy of the calling by which we have been called with all that lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering and bearing with one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And there's those famous ones. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one gospel, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and guess what? In you all. And that goes back to that gospel message by which the, well, was it Paul, uh, Peter says, Acts 4 verse 12, there is no name that has ever been given amongst men, I'm paraphrasing the verse, by which we can be saved except that one name which is Jesus. If you want to go to heaven, Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life. Those use definite articles. Adam has given us these, Adam's superfluous notes, and not superfluous, um, um, superlative notes, wonderful notes on Acts as we've gone through the study. done a fantastic job on it. And it talks about the way in Acts 19. And uh, Paul talks about, was it the who, the why? We haven't gone to the next bit, so I'm going to guess it's the what or something like that or the how. But you get down and you look through all that, the definite article says if it's the way, there's no other way. It's not a way, it's the way. 
The one and only we. We don't have to put one and only because there means that. There is the Adam Bar. There's another man called Adam Bar, but there's only that Adam Bar. There's only that Ronnie Nielsen. Twins, it gets a bit confusing, but we'll leave that for now. But in Ephesians, when we talk about that one church, guess what? One. And how we became one. And, and our unity is brought about because of the nature of who God is. And He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They all agree. They are one. And Paul says rejoice. And this rejoicing, perhaps we might take it on a surface level, as being something along the lines of rejoice because Janice became a Christian. Or we might say rejoice because Chris's business has been doing well. I hope it has. I don't know if it has. It might be um, rejoice because Paolo looks good and that's it. Well, just let's, let's feel good for Paolo. He's feeling good today. Therefore, we need to feel good for Paolo. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is going to explain to us, the Bible is going to explain to us that there's a lot more to rejoicing than just simply taking joy in another person's joy. It's a joy that we have together because of that one mind, that one purpose and the like that brings us together. And brethren, rejoice because of our belief in the Lord. Um, we start there, we go over here, we look at Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, for if you it's safe. Verse 4 of chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Where is that rejoicing done? In the Lord. And so when Paul says rejoice with those who rejoice, he's going back to that unity. With whom should you rejoice? Those who are in the Lord. If someone else is in the Lord, rejoice in their salvation. Because we are a people of joy. We are a people who have received salvation, excuse me, salvation, and we've got others who have received salvation, and that's worthy of our rejoicing. Believe in his birth. This has been challenged in recent years. But let's consider what um, Luke says. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice in his birth. It doesn't say everybody will rejoice at his birth. But many will rejoice at his birth. And then we believe that Jesus was born, that he grew up, that he walked upon this earth, that he taught the gospel of God, having been baptized by John and begun his ministry, and then ultimately having his life taken away with him, taken away from him rather, by crucifixion. We need to believe that he was born. We need to believe in the power that he has. Look over at Luke 13. When he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. All the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. In Acts chapter 19, we started reading from verse 8. And it talks about the miracles that Paul did when he came to Ephesus. And it says they brought handkerchiefs. And I get this impression that they came, they came up and rubbed them with their handkerchiefs. And then took the handkerchiefs away and, and rubbed them on their family members who needed healed. And God healed them. But when you go and look at uh, the, the ministry of Christ, John sums it all up by saying he did so many amazing things that if we were to write them all down in books is there enough room in the whole earth to fill, um, for all these books that we could write about the amazing things that he did he walked in water, he healed the dead uh, healed, uh, healed the sick, he raised the dead he fed the 5,000, the 4,000 over and over again, the power that we see in our loving God Rejoice because his presence is with the Father. We have an advocate who stands before God. Excuse me. Let's consider John 14. You have heard me say to you, John 14, 28, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, 
I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. So, you know, Pauline and Elizabeth's dad is dying. I don't know how long he's got. It doesn't seem long. His health's very poor. He's in a lot of pain and a lot of discomfort. And this lesson is going to cover both aspects of it. Because on the one hand there is joy because he's going to go and be with the Father. On the other hand there is going to be weeping. Because someone that is loved has gone from amongst us. Well Jesus died but he went to be with the Father when he ascended. And as we're going to learn as well, he also had a presence with, with a presence with his own disciples. In John 16:22, therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Then in chapter 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And that word glad is the exact same word as Paul uses. In Romans 12, 15. Rejoice. We'll talk a little bit later on about the death of Jesus and how that affects us. But it's also got a lot of joy in it, Adam. A joy knowing that Christ gave his life for our sakes and makes a promise to be with us. We need to rejoice in the day of the Lord. Over in uh, John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. That's talking about his triumph. That's talking about his victory. That's talking about how, oh grave, where is thy sting? Oh death, where is thy victory? Death has been swallowed up by what Christ did. And we need to rejoice in in that celebration of life that we now have because of what Jesus did. We need to rejoice in the hearing of the gospel. And that's whether it's me preaching or anyone else. You need to rejoice when the gospel's preached. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Glad, joy, rejoice. They're all the same word. I just translated differently because the word works better perhaps in its context. But when the word of God is preached, that is a thing of joy that we should share in. And what about our salvation, a common salvation that we each have? In Acts 8 verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Do you remember that day when you were immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you remember those people who came out perhaps to witness the day that you became a Christian? Do you remember the joy that you felt because you knew that you had done right by God and God himself was taking joy, was it? It says, is it Luke? And there is great rejoicing in heaven by the angels over one sinner who repents. One person who comes to God brings so much joy. And when we hear of someone being baptized, being forgiven of their sins, coming into a safe relationship with God, should it not fill us with joy and excitement? What a blessing God has given us to be part of that. And to rejoice that there is now our enrollment in heaven. Revelation talks about having our names written in the book of life. Jesus says in Luke 10 verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because... Your names are written in heaven. Now forget the context of this, I didn't look at it that closely. But I'm pretty sure the sort of thing he's talking about is that the powers that they have, the ministries that they're able to do, that's all very well. But don't take the joy out of that. Realize that the bigger picture is 
You're going to go to heaven. What a wonderful joy. Do you know that there's a sadness sometimes when you go into a graveyard and you perhaps walk in there and there's the headstone. And maybe the name is written across the top of it. And maybe there's years put in. 1900 to 1980. And in between there's that hyphen. And someone's pointed out that that hyphen is for many people their entire life. And that's oftentimes for what people it is. That's what that hyphen all it represents. There was 80 years of life perhaps. And all that, they can say of it, all that can be said of it is hyphen. There's not a lot you can fit on a headstone anyway. But what if your name was written in heaven? You know, we think of the book of life. It's like a register. You open it up and God ticks. You know, Nielsen. Here. You know, Budlong. Okay then, here, I'll do it for you, Paolo. Maybe it's talking to my mum, I don't know. Do you know, I wonder if the book of life isn't just much more than that. The life that the person lived. The joy that God has in our obedience to that gospel. The rejoicing that we have because we know our name's written there. Rejoicing in our hope. Because of what it means to us, because we know our name is written in that book of life. Romans 12, verse 12, which is in our context here. Rejoicing in that hope. Then in chapter 5, verse 2. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Now hope is not... I hope I passed the driving test. I've done everything I possibly can, but you know what? It's all 50-50. It's not hope in... Oh, the number, numbers come up in the pools or lottery ticket that many in the world think about. It's hope in the certainty of the conviction of our faith that says we're getting it. It's hope in the sense of, I know I'm going to get it, I just have to wait for it to arrive. And hope will become reality and it will not last in heaven because we have our hope. We have received our hope. And brethren, that's a thing to rejoice in. That's a thing to celebrate in our lives. Paul goes on, um, sorry, we've got to talk about a reward in heaven. We've got our enrollment in heaven. I live my life knowing that I'm going to be there. Well, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you at the end of those beatitudes, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. There's rejoice that your name's written there, and then there's rejoice in the fact that you're there, or that you know others are, that you know for an absolute certainty that's where you're going to spend an eternity. That you may know you have eternal life, John says in 1 John 5.13. That is a thing to rejoice in. And Paul, he rejoiced that Christ is preached. Over in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And then this, I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. That the name of God is put forth. That the name of Jesus is taken on by other people's lives. That God gets the glory because of the preaching of the gospel. Paul said, that's worthy of our rejoicing. Now the other side to this in verse 15 is to weep with those who weep. That's not necessarily saying that because someone has lost someone, and, and we should do this, but I'm going to suggest to you that in Romans 12 verse 15, point the other way. When we go over to Romans 12, 15, we talk about this weeping. We're not talking about necessarily because someone has lost a member of their family to death. That's part of it. And there's no two ways about it. But there's so much more going on in this idea of weeping with those who weep. 
Let me suggest to you that we need to wait for the slaughter of the innocents. This comes to us from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 18, when Herod ordered the death of all the, the, the boys under the age of two in the city of Bethlehem. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. That kind of weeping was heard in the banks of the river Nile in the days of Moses. When the children, who, because he was one of them that they were trying to find, well, I, I, actually they didn't know about him, they were just trying to kill all the boys, I suppose. When they were trying to control the population there, and the weeping that must have been heard, and how much higher the river must have risen just from the tears of the women of Israel who had their children taken from them and thrown to the crocodiles. But brethren, it's more than just simply the slaughter of the innocents. It's more than just weeping over the loss of human life in the Bible. It's weeping for the most dangerous place on earth, a mother's womb. You know, we read in the news, maybe it's a thousand soldiers that have died, or two thousand soldiers that have died in Iraq since the war began. There's 180,000 lost their lives in the United Kingdom in the last year, just because they were in their mother's womb. Millions of children every year lose their lives, just because they're in their mother's womb. China has its one-child policy, and it results in either the child, if it's, certainly if it's a daughter that's born first, being taken out into the woods and left to die there, or countless of them ending up in the orphanages there in China. And a lot of misunderstanding about those things, even at that. But there's a genocide of the human race that's going on for the sake of convenience. I watched a debate in which somebody asked an ethical question of an atheist, and says, you know, if we had to save the population by wiping out the population of Brazil, or something like that, would it be justifiable according to... It's not there's better ways of controlling the population. And the Christian got up and he said, yeah, killing the children in the mother's womb. Brethren, it should make us cry that a mother would do that to her own child. We should weep with those who weep. Weeping for the loss of a child who has died with two incidents here. Uh, I think it's the same context, different passages. Mark, 30, Mark 5, beginning in verse 38. He came to the, ruler, the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Luke 7, verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion in her and said to her, Do not weep. But it's a good thing to weep for those who have lost someone so very dear to them. What tears and anguish must go through a parent who has lost a child, who has had to go to a graveside. I remember when Oliver died at and I was in um, taking some time out for myself. I was down at Eastfield Cemetery, and I parked the car and joined a beautiful day, and I saw the headstone. I wasn't even looking for it. I wasn't there for that reason. I just looked up, and I saw a headstone, and I thought, I remember Oliver. Eight years old. Died of an asthma attack. And what pain and anguish. I remember when um, the incident when uh, Dory Fayed and uh, Princess Diana perished in that car accident in Paris. And I remember Adam talking about um, the father, Al Fayed, is that his name? From uh, the old Herodzona, Herodzona. Herods, that's the one there. Herod's the guy in the Bible, anyway. And Adam said what grief he must experience to behave the way he is. You know, the, the, trying to find the truth about what really happened to his son, not settling for the official explanation, what grief a person goes through for the loss of a child. Brethren, that's something that should cause us to weep. Weeping for the loss of a loved one. You go to John chapter 11 and read about the death of Lazarus. 
the Jews who were with her in the house, comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up and quickly went out, followed her, saying she is going to the tomb to weep there. Verse 33, Jesus, when he saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And perhaps the most profound passage in the whole Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus knew what it meant to weep for those who had lost somebody that they loved. And Jesus loved Lazarus. In fact, if you read the next verse, the Jews say, see how he loved him. When the stones rained down upon the body of Stephen at the end of Acts chapter 7, Stephen said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. It doesn't say this, but I can't imagine it being otherwise. The tears of a saviour over somebody that he loves losing his life. And also the anticipation of joy that that loved one will soon be with him. And what about weeping for the death of a saviour? I've heard the stories of Willie Steele during the Lord's Supper. Well, he died in, what, 1974, hereabouts. The tears in his eyes. The death of a saviour. We spoke about rejoicing because our name is in heaven, rejoicing because of what Jesus did for us, rejoicing because of the salvation that we have, but weep for the death of a saviour because of what he had to do to make that happen for us. Over in Mark chapter 16, 10, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. In an earlier part of the time frame of that, in John 20 verse 11, Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, weeping for a saviour. And as she wept, she stood down and looked into the tomb. In John 20 verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know why, where they have laid him. And then two verses later, Jesus said to her, why are you weeping? Woman, whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And contextually, Mark 16, 10 is what happens next. Weeping for the death of a saviour, but weeping as well that it had to happen. That it was our sins that placed him on a cross. Weeping for the death of a noble servant. Consider Tabitha or Dorcas, as she's also known. Peter arose and went with them, and when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And I've never caught on to this before. All the widows stood by him weeping. I got that bit. Showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with him. As though they were treasured objects. Taking them and just asking perhaps to touch those garments. This is what she did for me. This is how important she is. This is what she did for my life. Um, I was reading in the Gospel Advocate from a few years ago. Just reading it the other day. And they've been looking for an edition of the Acts by... Um, Commentary on the Book of Acts by J.W. McGarvey, 1st edition, 1896. And several families wrote in, we've got one, but you're not getting it. Because it's been in the family for over a hundred years. And we just can't bear to part with it. That book that perhaps one day we open, and we read the name, you know, something inscribed, given to us as a gift, perhaps from a parent long gone, or, or a friend long gone, and we just remember the sentiment of what that means to us. You know, there's going to be a time when our daughters will open up the Bibles that we gave them on the day of their baptism or, or the occasion of their um, wedding or whatever it might have been. Or we might just open up a letter that we'd sent her to and never want to part with it because there was a noble servant who died in the Lord. 
But we also need to wait for those who will be destroyed. But Jesus said of this in Luke 23, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not wait for me, but wait for yourselves and for Jerusalem. There is a great and terrible day coming. And for them it came in the destruction of Jerusalem in about AD 70. It said of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 that not a single Christian died at the hands of the Romans when they came in the war in the Israelite wars at that time. But for those who were left behind. And if you want to get an idea of what it was like for those Jews who were stuck in places like uh, Masala and Jerusalem when the Romans came against them. When the eagle was seen on the horizon and the armies encompassed the cities. Go and read some of the prophets. Go read the book of Ezekiel. Go read some of the, the stories in the books of Kings and Chronicles. There are stories there about how uh, uh, women were taking their children. There's a story, I think it's in it's either Kings or Chronicles. During one of the sieges of the city of Jerusalem, um, two women had made a pact. Today we'll eat my baby. Tomorrow we'll eat yours. They were starving today. And they ate one of the babies. Cannibals. And the next day they went to eat the other baby and the other woman had hidden it because she didn't want her baby to be killed. And she had enough, she failed to eat that she could maybe last just a few more days. Maybe she can just get to the other side of this siege. You go through the book of Ezekiel and you see similar stories that are told there. Brethren, weep for those who will be destroyed, not just in life, but in eternity. Because they will not embrace Jesus as their Lord. And even in that, weep for your own sins and excesses. In James chapter 4 and verse 9, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And the next verse says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. James 5 verse 1, Come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Talking about those who are members of the church but have relied too much on this world and not put God where he needs to be in their lives. When you consider the story in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man learned to weep and howl for the miseries that had come upon him, for he lifted up his eyes in torment and saw Lazarus afar off in the bosom of Abraham. We need to weep with those who weep. And it comes about because of a oneness that we each share. Because of the mind of Christ that dwells within us. Because we are more than just a name called the Church of Christ. We are a people who are of one in Christ. We're not just a part of the body. Together we are the body. Together we care for one another. Love for one another. Cherish one another. We consider one another. We encourage one another. We strengthen one another for the battles that we must undertake. We bear one another's burdens and we serve God faithfully. When we allow ourselves to become a part of that body, to become a part of that oneness that God speaks of, that way that Paul preached of, to become what God intended of us, we discover a true oneness. A oneness that means we cannot help but rejoice with those who are of the faith, and we cannot help ourselves but weep with those who weep with us. We cannot allow ourselves to be diminished because of a lack of understanding of this thing. But realize, brethren, that what makes us truly the Church of Christ is not a name or a baptism, but by how we care for one another. God bless you.